All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio episode. I believe where are we here? We are on thirty-one. Um, hope everyone is doing well on the end of the craziness that was last week. Uh, the impression is being pushed out that so many people are up in arms and ready to raise havoc and all this. And I would suggest to you that a lot of this is fueled um, by the very people who would like to see havoc be raised. Um, I've said many times I don't really give a damn about the elections. I don't believe we play much of any role in it at all, and I think the outcome will be what the outcome will be. But I talk about that a little more in the episode as we get into it. Uh, I have Jason back with me this time. Next time around, we're going to have a three-way uh, roundtable with Jason and James Alfred, who so many of you probably remember. He's become quite a researcher in his own right, uh, having jumped in with the Lunar Wave and uh, the old Hattie Bob stuff that I kind of walked away from back in the day. Anyhow, um, I'm getting ready to replace Crow 777 Radio. I'm building a new website. It will have a modern forum, a real forum, finally. And I will be shifting servers. And uh, as I also talk about in this episode, there has been massive problems with online tools uh, on the tail of the DDoS attack that happened supposedly in the East Coast. So many people complaining that their Gmail is not delivering, things like this. I will be shifting my mail over to a private server, and uh, that brings me to video. There's been real questions raised for a long time now who owns the video that goes up on YouTube and what happens when you finally get sick of YouTube and you walk away and leave that video behind, um, presumably the original copy that you uploaded and then the encoded copy at the very least that YouTube creates. Um, with this in mind, I am aiming towards a private server and that would allow me to push my own video, which could be served on my own private site and get away from all the nonsense that YouTube is becoming. Um, and while I will still probably maintain a YouTube account as my sole form of social media, um, I will use it in a different way, certainly. Um, so much of what we see going on is just throwing any concern of the end user aside. And even this whole Gmail thing where people have been complaining for over a week now that they're not getting any mail and yet nothing seems to be done. Same thing happened during the DDoS where PayPal and other services went down and it took many hours to restore them. Uh, a lot of my friends in the, I guess what we would call the hacker community claim something changed that day that the DDoS went on. Um, even commenting using the matrix reference that the code went all weird, whatever that may mean. Um, anyhow, this is a great episode. We cover so much um, about the kind of modern age that we find ourselves in. And one particular, you know, we, we cover the cybernetics and the transhumanism and the things that have been touched on in the past two social engineering episodes. <clears throat> but one thing that I've taken a, a keen interest in lately is the idea that fiction-based authors from days gone by were writing the history that we were later presented with. Uh, things like nukes and telecommunications and satellites. Those were originally made up by fiction authors. Even the whole supposed religion of Scientology was created by a man who was a sci-fi writer. Really, can we set these things aside and just act like that's normal? Well, for me, not so much. Anyhow, let's jump into this episode. It is a good one, and the second hour is on, actually it's more, it's almost a second hour and a half, is on crow777radio.com. And again, if you have been trying to email me, uh, what I'm finding is if you try more than once, you will get through, probably. And if you don't hear back from me, that email was not delivered because I do answer email. So there it is, man. Let's jump in. All right, man. Welcome to episode 31 of Crow 777 Radio Podcast. I have Jason Lindgren back with me uh, this time, and probably the next show uh, we're going to do a three-way roundtable with Jason Lindgren, James Alfred, myself, and we will be doing like a year roundup um, and talk a bit about what's gone down this year and, uh, yeah, anyhow, moving forward. Uh, we had a heck of a little stretch here starting on the 21st of last month where there was a DDoS attack, which I mentioned before. Um, we're still feeling the uh, the echoes from that DDoS. Right now, uh, on my podcast website, all traffic started to fall after the DDoS on the 21st, and it has never recovered. Right now, my podcast website shows next to no traffic, and historically, this is... A complete 180. Um, there has constantly been traffic to my podcast website ever since I've put it up. I know for a fact people are viewing the episodes, and yet I'm not getting communications and this kind of thing. Just so everyone knows, 
if an email comes to me, I answer it. There is never a time when I ignore email or do other things like this. And right now, Gmail is apparently showing a major outage overlapping where the DDS, uh, DDoS happened. But here's the rub. I identified that I wasn't getting emails that I should have. The people who sent them cannot even show they were sent from their Gmail account or in spam or getting a demon back saying it was undeliverable. So that's what's going on. If you have tried to communicate with me and I didn't respond, keep on it. Um, what we did to test this was we responded that we are not receiving email and we know there's a problem with the system. And on the second try or so, the emails began to come through. Anyone can look up the outage map on Gmail, but something has clearly changed uh, with the major internet systems on the East Coast on the tail of the DDoS, which was probably what South Park was making fun of with the whole troll history of the internet thing out of Denmark because that happened, that episode was released right as the DDoS happened and of course so many people are aware of the last South Park episode before the election, Caitlyn Jenner looking into the camera at the very last scene someone saying this is an interesting election and she looks into the camera and says better buckle up buckaroos so clearly South Park is echoing uh, so much of what's going on and they're doing it in damn near real time so anyhow, um, I've got Jason with me, and Jason has put together a list on the tale of the two social engineering uh, episodes that I just did, which have been very, very popular, uh, which is not reflected very accurately in my site traffic, which tells you something. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Hey, Crow. Great to be back again. How are things down in the uh, great state of Louisiana on the tale of uh, all this nonsense that just went on? Uh, you know, I, would ex I was expecting people to get a little more crazy about the election and all that, but people have been pretty chill here it's more social media that i'm seeing blowing up but um people in general aren't acting as nuts as i'm seeing news reports from all over the country yeah you know i i had said quite a while ago that i was almost certain hillary would go in based on things i'd seen in movies and you know supposed um encoding of information in shows and clearly uh, I am still in diapers, and I'm going to leave forecasting to people who can see in the future moving forward and concentrate on what I can see in real time as much as I can. Um, but again, you know, referencing the South Park episode where Caitlyn Jenner looks in and makes a direct reference to the election, uh, where I think she is supposed to be the VP with one other South Park character or something, yeah. and looking into the camera and closing it last thing before the election saying, you better buckle up, buckaroos, or something to that effect. So yeah, man, it's been a, an unusual time. But you know, I would urge people, it doesn't really matter. We don't play a role in the election. If, if any given person uh, wants to consider this, just think, what did the American people, what part did they play in choosing the candidates? I even asked members of my family that are older, and they started to say things like the primaries. And I said, well, wait a minute, before the primaries, how did that candidate get to be there? Did the American people have anything to do with this? And that even sets aside the whole electoral college thing. How many times have we been told in this country that the popular vote went to the guy who lost? So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Um there's only been a few times in, in presidential history where the popular vote and the electoral vote didn't match up. So, Right, but I mean, it underlines. I mean, basically what that would mean to me is more people wanted the guy who didn't make it. Um, and anyone who really wants to understand something about elections needs to go look at the Electoral College. Yeah. You know, um, that is not our votes. That it has nothing to do with us. That's all politically driven. But anyhow, I don't want to waste a lot of time on election because I don't really give a damn. Uh, in, in my view, it made no difference either way. It was going to be what it was going to be. Um, that's just me. Anyhow, you put together quite a list of topics to cover. And this may also begin to play into the next episode when we're going to get James Alford in here, who has become quite a researcher in his own right. He started by uh, jumping in on Hattie Bob and the lunar wave and things like this. And he has excelled and he has such an analytical mind that it will be very interested to get James here. But anyhow, I'll kick it over to you. Go ahead. Let's jump into uh, to the meat and potatoes here. All right. So continuing on from the topics we've been hitting on, uh, we're going to get a little more specific with the social engineering aspects in, in all of our society. And we're going to touch on computers eugenics, cybernetics, and transhumanism, and all these things, of course, intertwine. Uh, going back in time, some of the earlier things that we see showing up in media would be from people like H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, uh, Bertrand Russell, but uh, starting with H.G. Wells, uh, 
he was putting out science fiction, but hitting topics that absolutely came about decades later. Uh, I think what the, the one more interesting ones is his 1913 novel, uh, The World Set Free. He, he's discussing the creation of nuclear weapons, which obviously in 1913 hadn't come about yet, or had even were even really being spoken about. Uh, to to the to the masses at large. So, uh, what are your thoughts on H. G. Wells? Um, I, I did some research on him myself, and I'm seeing conflicting reports on whether he was a Freemason or not. But he was part of the fledgling Fabian Society at the time. And um, let's let's hear what you think about that. Well, clearly, he is right in that group of people who centered around the whole later formation of Tavistock, the kind of royalty club, this kind of thing. And if people look into it, they will find many of the people we're going to talk about here um, are in the same group. 1984, Brave New World. These all have a relationship to the early Tavistock and pre-Tavistock researchers that came out of the Frankfurt School in Germany, all the way back to like Freud and stuff like this. But to touch on what you just pointed out about H.G. Wells, uh, so much of what we do on this podcast is point out fictions, things that have been inserted into our textbooks, into our what we think our reality is that are nothing more than fiction. And H.G. Wells is this in spades. You know, as you point out, you know, what was the published date on that, like 1913 or something? Yeah. And he's talking about nuclear weapons. How is that even possible? Well, I'll tell you what my view is. Um, it is actually fiction. When I have said so many times that I don't accept nuclear weapons or nukes, I just don't. So if I am correct in this assertion, um, what you're looking at is a fiction writer inventing this idea. And then somehow we get to a point in history where this fictional writer's idea is being passed off as reality. And we can see this in spades with Isaac Asimov, who, I mean, some people credit him with, um, you know, the invention of satellites and telecommunications and all these other things. He's a damn science, you know, a, a sci-fi writer, for crying out loud. But that's my take on it. These people seem to have been writing fiction-based accounts that became for lack of a better term, classic literature in our culture. And what they were doing is making up the reality that was going to be handed and passed off later, I think. Right. And H.G. Wells, um, a lot of people only know him as a science fiction writer, but he was involved in uh, the British government politics just all over the place for the majority yeah, of his is. life. So that tells you right there that you know, he wasn't – that maybe early on in his 20s when he was writing some of his earlier novels, he wasn't quite involved yet – but um, so whatever it was that was going on, he definitely got tapped into the greater social structure of the government in England. So we know he had to have some information that the, the average person wouldn't have had. Well, for the most part, in a place like England, the picture we're shown is if you're going to be in that strata of life, you are in that kind of bloodliney, upper crust family, family-ish. You know, you're 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 born into this group of people that are the movers and shakers. This idea of not only royalty, but those special families that surround the idea of royalty. I mean, how many of us grew up in this country being told that the British monarchy? was about like a flag that they held no no real power well that's complete nonsense and we can demonstrate it even with like canada um there's something and i hope i don't get this too wrong because i know that people live in canada will listen but there's i believe something still on the books where if there's a vote in canada that gets deadlocked the queen breaks the vote yeah there was something that happened a few i don't remember how long ago but it was fairly recent where the queen actually said no i don't want that person in there it's this person so she still wields power well, I mean, that's more than power, isn't it? Um, in, in the idea of democracy, putting a person in or taking a person out is supposed to be contingent on vote. And although we all know that's nonsense, this last election in the United States, having shown in spades what nonsense our elections are and, you know, the minuscule, if any role that we play and who gets there um, to have someone from a royal family. I, I mean, why do we even have royalty at this point? You could ask, what do they do? Truth is, is they wield the power of this world. Um, you can track back any of these big time writers that we're going to talk about. Jules Verne, they're all connected to it. Even when you get to Crowley and the Blavatskys, they're all lords and ladies for crying out loud. Right. And one of the things I definitely noticed as I was doing some homework to prepare for this, uh, the majority of them are Freemasons. So make of that what you will. Right. Um, I had I saw conflicting reports on whether H.G. Wells was or not, but just about all these other people we're going to refer to um, are either Freemasons, and the majority of them are, 
or they're part of one of these organizations um especially in the 1800s a lot of these things get founded like the Fabian Society um the Frankfurt School like all these things they all intertwine and and you see as we're going to walk through history here all the way up to today how these things um the, all these organizations work with each other to basically accomplish their overall goal and you know all these characters that we're going to point out are involved in one or more of these organizations that's right but you mentioned the fabian society now this is social engineering in spades here's the stated goal of the fabian society founded supposedly in 1884 the Fabian Society is a British socialist organization whose purpose is to advance the principles of democratic socialism, sorry, socialism via gradualist and reformist efforts in democracy instead of revolutionary overthrow. Well, what does that mean? That means social engineering. In other words, they're going to slowly over time reform it in the way they want to and uh by plan, by by stated strategy, uh, stay as far away from conflict and revolution as you can. That's a principle of social engineering. Right. So you see that from from the earliest beginnings, these people already had in mind uh, from vi basically Victorian times, like, OK, this is how we want things to go. And b through these people that they're putting out the science fiction literature, they're already putting these concepts out there about what how it is they want to shape society over over the decades to come exactly i mean what better allegory do we have uh, than putting the cart before the horse right i mean it's exactly <laughs> that they're they're inventing these things in fiction that don't exist they're implementing these reforms through government or social engineering in other ways that seemingly don't connect directly to the time they're in. And yet, as we get a little further down the road, guess what? H.G. Was, Wells was right. We're going to be told that there's nuclear weapons now. Um, and this is true of so many of the authors of this time. Jules Verne, um, just there's a whole load of them. Odilus Huxley. Um, and of course, it cannot be understated, Isaac Asimov, who was buddy-buddy with Stanley Kubrick. But there it is. Yeah, Isaac Asimov, um, he was an important one because in 1944 he put out his story Liar, and that's the first time you hear the, the term robotics. And he, right. put, he puts out the three laws of robotics about not harming humans and all that. So you, you see very early on, I mean, before – this is long before Star Trek or Star Wars or any of this stuff, you know, the, these concepts were being bantied about. Well, right. And they're not just being bandied about in the modern age. They are part and parcel of the playbook of the people who would re-engineer this world to be as they want it. And you can demonstrate these things. You just mentioned Isimov's three laws of robotics. Well, not too, too long ago, uh, those very three laws were recited verbatim on Big Bang. And as I've said so many times, um, the most popular television shows, most popular movies will be used to pre-echo and insert aspects of the system at large that we all live in. And so, I mean, there it is. And not only that, I, I, I would need to go back. I've read this stuff, but I was a heck. I was probably in my 20s last time I read anything from Asimov. I would not be surprised to see uh, some of these ideas going over into the transhumanism push, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Right, and he put out a lot of things. Well, he put out the uh, the series with with basically the uh, the robots that had turned human, and they yep. were fighting for their rights. And I'm um, I'm blanking on the name of that series, but I'm anyone who knows sci-fi knows what I'm referring to. But he, he in that even postulated the fact that um, the machines can become sentient, and uh, that's an incredibly important concept that ties in with the transhumanism because basically what transhumanism is is this is this concept that as technology progresses people who follow the transhumanist agenda feel that we should be merging with machines that slowly but surely we are going to be integrating more machine parts into our human bodies until they become one and the same and the, and the biological parts will no longer be relevant right and in the modern age again we see the echoing of these ideas and things like the movie the matrix where people made machines the machines became sentient and then there was a problem and then all of a sudden that's throwing out uh, isaac asimov's three robotics laws you know robots aren't supposed to hurt people but there's even a deeper side of this whole transhumanism thing to me uh there's a new movie out on hbo called westworld where Everyone remembers the 70s sci-fi Westworld where they were clearly robots. Well, in the new version, apparently they were like mechanical robots, but now they've figured out how to cut costs. So basically they're flesh and blood. 
androids. Um, and this plays heavily, in my view, into the transhumanism. But there's a weird aspect to this of almost making these androids or transhuman people or what are into slaves of some sort for the, you know, in, in this allegory, the the androids are the hosts and the guests can do whatever they want to them. You know, so here we're back to the whole slave-master relationship. And uh, I did see the first episode of that, and part of the storyline is that one of the robots is starting to challenge its reality. And, right. And it's trying to basically break free and figure out what what is really going on here, and uh, that's the character played by Ed Harris. And, of course, he's dressed in traditional black. He's the bad guy, the evil cowboy, whatever you want to call him. And he's doing things outside of his programming, so... You know, there you go with the whole notion of challenging the Matrix system that he's locked in. Right. I haven't seen enough of it, but it's almost like they're making him an echo of the old, uh, what was the bald guy's name in the original? He was a big Yule Brenner, um, almost like he's echoed on the other side. But I think he's supposed to be a person. Um, not sure. There could be a plot twist there. But, I, you know, absolutely, when you see these big HBO productions who incidentally got 22 uh, awards last time around for their what they do um, more way more than anyone else and you know this programming matters this programming is a bit like the third law of alchemy where they're revealing what was previously hidden and this seems to be a tenant with these folks every time we see the social engineering go down the road south park is doing it in spades right now in a kind of way you have to unravel um where they showed a whole city get hacked and a wall built around it at the exact same time the ddos attack happened on the eastern seaboard and then of course caitlin pre-echoing the outcome in a weird way uh of the election we just had but yeah uh now moving through time we we get up to another one of these really major figures uh who is bertrand russell or lord bertrand russell if you like although um i definitely question the um <clears throat> motives and integrity of anybody with, who takes on the title of Lord, just based off of some of the other horrible things we've heard about. Uh, and again, tied into the Frankfurt School. Uh, in, the, in his 1951 novel that's called The Impact of Society, um, and, and this is early on, this is before any of the upheaval of the 60s or anything like that, he is quoted in this book on social engineering. And, and here's the quote. When the technique has been perfected, every government that has been in charge of education for a generation will be able to control its subjects securely without the need of armies or policemen. Well, good grief. I mean, that sounds like exactly what's going on now. Yeah, I mean, there it is. The last two episodes that I put up were so heavily influenced by what we know about the Tavistock Institute. People should understand that almost everything that got rolled into Tavistock seems to have come from the Frankfurt School. And there is almost like a this weird delineation in time, and who knows how much of history is accurate. I can't tell you that. But if you mark from Freud, German, or, you know, Germanish, and and Jung, um, and the Frankfurt School, there is the seed of psychology that seems to have been reshaped, reformed up into the Frankfurt School, eventually into the Tavistock Society, backed by the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the, you know, the CFR, the Triliteral Commission, all the people sitting on those boards where they realized the power of psychology and science to be able to predict when you do a given thing, what the outcome will do. And this is it in a nutshell. As we talk about the Frankfurt School here, this is the seeds of social engineering, in my view. And these common names you're always hearing bantied about, like Rockefellers and Rothschilds on them, uh, the, the reason why they get uh, mentioned so much is because you see these people's hands in all these organizations, like the Tavistock Institute was founded in 1946, and it's funded by a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. So it's like right. over and over and over again. You know, you know, maybe they're not the very top top of the elite pyramid they may be they may be not it's kind of hard to prove once you get into you know murky waters like that but you can see the 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 real obvious public stuff like this these people have got their hands in everything they're putting their gazillions of dollars into these organizations for the control mechanisms that's right but there's a whole portion of this that very few people are, are unaware of you know i mentioned last time how uh, J.P. Morgan went out at some point early in the 1900s to find the most influential papers and buy them. Well, there's a similar thing that went on within this group where they identified every single workers' union in the world, and they infiltrated them 
and they treated them with group psychology techniques so that the claim was that every time the workers thought they had made a step forward, they were just being more firmly gripped to the modern age where, I mean, you can look up stats that shows America was at its strongest when roughly 37% of the nation was uh, unionized. I don't know how valid that is, but if you look now, I mean, what are we, 6 7%? I don't know. I'm guessing. I'm pulling a very low number out of my hat because I didn't look it up, but it's a very low number at this point. But th- there's there's actually more to this because you see so many people openly be able to draw a line to the Rockefeller Foundation or the Rothschilds or, you know, even go to places like in Israel, Rothschild Street or in France, similar things, stuff named after Rothschilds. Um, But it's almost like those are the names, in my view, that are put before us for us to hate on. Because if you go a level above that to like black nobility and these supposed ancient royal families that claim the longest lineage in this world, whether or not that's true, if you look up the names, you won't recognize them. I mean, if you've done research on things like uh, the Vatican, you'll you'll recognize names like Orsini or, you know, these other supposed family names that were around the Pope at certain times. My point being is the real movers and shakers are, for the most part, out of view, and the people that we hate on all the time are the obvious ones that aren't even attempted to be hidden in any way, Rothschild and, uh, and Rockefeller being prime candidates. And I would add, I don't, you know, I don't know the history of the Rockefeller family, I, it seems like not too long ago I heard someone wanted to do a biography but was blocked in some way. I don't know if that's true. Um, but is Rockefeller even a royal name or is this one of the later kind of barons that just happened to get rich to a point that was crazy um, without any royal connection at all? I don't know. The uh, the Rockefellers were snake oil salesmen in the 1800s. And I am, I can I could do a quick check and find the original name. It's It's – the name has changed. That is not their original name. It was something else. Um, I believe they once again are Kazarian Jewish descent. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, Rockefeller is not a real name. It's something they changed. And I'll find out real quick because I, I can uh, look that up quick for everybody's uh, information out there. Yeah, but they, yeah. were, they were snake oil salesmen uh, in the 1800s, and they made their money uh, by consolidating power by uh, through the oil companies and – you know, the late 1800s and the early 1900s with Standard Oil, they had the monopoly and everything, which eventually became Exxon. Right. And it's so funny because those of us who were old enough who were in the 70s and remember the supposed oil shortages, there were still gas stations back then with Standard Oil signs, um, you know, so you can see how things get kind of shuffled under the rug over time. But, you know, and I hate to even say this, but I will um, so many times when it comes down to control of money or the richest among us, you're going to find the Jewish connection. And I don't mean that as a jibe towards Jewish people in the same way that I don't mean to stab anyone who's in a Masonic lodge and just a family man, although I would suggest that the leadership of those organizations are absolutely destroying this world for the average person. Right. And. Anybody who does a little bit of research, they realize when when we say Jewish connection, it's not the original Jewish people that would have been coming out of the Middle East, you know, zillions years ago. It's predominantly this um, Jewish connection out of the Kazarian re- uh, region that's in Eastern Europe. And, you know, there's there's a history here that a lot of people don't bother to look up, but it's very important to know is they weren't originally Semitic peoples. They weren't from the Middle East. They were... You know, they're they're almost Russian. They're like Eastern European, and and you can see it with the, with the look that uh, gets traditionalized as as Jewish, but it's actually not. Um, and they took on the Jewish faith, and then that branched out. That's what, where you get them in, uh, into the Germanic peoples. A lot of them are German Jews. You know, the the, the Rothschilds is Red Shield. That's out of right uh, Germany. You know, and a lot of people just don't realize this. They kind of make these blanket statements like it's all Freemasons, it's all Jews. It's no, it's not. It's certain sects, and all you got to do is do a little homework, and you'll find out. It's this group that spidered out all over Europe and and got control of different uh, aspects of the social structure. That's right. And this is a key point to make, Jason, because it's really not helpful when you see all these comments on YouTube. Oh, it's the damn Jews. Um, That's 
not only a very not very smart thing to do it's it's an erroneous thing to do a lot of this has to do with the language and the religion and kabbalah and tarot and the tree of life and all these ancient things that are now into freemasonry they were in all crowley stuff these ancient traditions is really what we're talking about and you know it's it's hard to know that how many people uh, are not even Jewish that are using these tools. I don't know the answer to that, but basically it's the traditions that have been wielded against us in the same way the secrets of Freemasonry, it, whatever they may be, have been wielded against us. But again, there's no separating these two things. The ancient mysticism of what we call Jewishness and Freemason, they're not only hand in hand, they're they're one in the same. Right. And Anybody can do do the homework with all this, but the way that the, the names we do know, like Rockefeller and Rothschild, they got the control they have today by getting into the the banking institutes. Basically, you know, the, right. the Rothschilds um, in the early 1800s got control of several of the banks uh, between Germany and the United Kingdom, and then the Rockefellers kind of did something similar in the United States, and then as history progresses, you can see that they all started kind of teaming up, and just with the money that they had, were able to institute the uh, very large-scale events that, that took place in the 20th century, which would be World War One, World War Two, and then everything leading up to today. Right, and you can show that the bankers were, you know, playing both sides of the coin in any given conflict ever, um, which goes to show you that war on the face of it is not what you've been told it is. Um, when you have top-level bankers who control the majority of banking and money in this world paying for supposed Nazi things, then paying for supposed, you know, other side of the coin things, it goes to show you what the construct is. Um, if there was truly a war and truly people at odds, uh, the money could shut down either side instantaneously uh, with the banking that's been implemented for so long now that's pretty much worldwide. Right, and what's interesting about the, the the whole deal they do with with funding both sides is they're going to profit no matter what. So it's quite obvious that these people have no allegiance to countries. Like the right. nationality means nothing to them. You know, they, in World War One, they're they're giving money to Germany and to the United and to the Allies, the United States, and the United Kingdom, and everything. So it doesn't matter to them. It's completely irrelevant. And and you'll notice that uh, where a lot of the banks do business through is Switzerland, and that never gets touched. Right. So and it doesn't have. Obvious. Yeah. Yeah. It's very obvious. And not only that, it's the one place we were told in school doesn't have a standing army and all this other nonsense that why why is this special place Switzerland? Well, clearly, um, that's where the power resides. But, you know, why? I guess we could ask, why would you give a damn about an individual nation when any nation is your oyster, basically? Yeah. So. I think it's obvious once you start to scratch on the surface a little bit, you can see how they do their business. It's all about the big banks controlling things from behind the scenes and manipulating everything on a global scale so that no matter what happens, their profits are always what's important and, and what's always going to be the thing that matters to them the most. They don't give a crap about the people, the nationalities, or anything to that Right. I, I would also submit that so many of these big historical events um, are not as real as you think they are. And while there may be portions where, you know, people say, well, I had a grandfather who was there, this, that or the other thing, the overall scheme of wars in the way we have been presented with them in our textbooks. Uh, I don't accept that. Uh, a lot of it is much like the news we get, all the gun violence news, where it's hard to pin exactly where reality leaves fiction, um, but it's clear that these are being implemented, staged, and planned at some level. And I imagine, you know, in the coming months, um, people will begin to dig further and further into that and, and make it more clear than it is. Although there are people now who, who think they can pretty much show, you know, what the, what the Department of Homeland Security had to do with it, how the drills were pulled off, then played as real. But that doesn't really cover how you do major events like supposed Hiroshima or Nagasaki or these other things that I don't accept as actual historical events right and just to, to kind of back all of your, everything you just said about wars up uh winston churchill who was of course with the prime minister during the world war ii era well his uh mentor was lord rothschild and there you, there you go there you go it's just like well who, what are they telling him behind the scenes you know so that just tells you that everything was being directed uh with the major politicians 
from from these banking clans. And uh, to kind of get back to the, our, our topics here, uh, some of the earliest computers were funded by these people. You know, it wasn't scientists kind of doing independent work. It was it was obviously government organizations. One of the first ones would be um, the Colossus computer that was used to break the Ultra and Enigma codes at Bletchley Park. And, of course, that came through because of funding from the Rothschilds. I, I mean, I have wondered from the outset, you know, I've been using computers since the mid 90s. I saw the onset of what we call, you know, being online. But I've always wondered if it was possible. You know, let me back that up a bit. At the end of the 80s, I had started to go to like community colleges to take classes about computers. And even at that time, there were these massive excuse me, machines with punch cards. And I walked away from it at that time thinking, really, this is ridiculous. And I have always wondered if really the technology that got pushed out to the public was not even in the same league as these places you're mentioning that funded the original technology. I mean, for all we know, um, they don't even use what we would consider a Windows box or something like that. You know, they could be off onto these bio computers that look more like a human brain or who knows what. Um, but I think there's real possibilities in considering that what the general public gets its hands on is nowhere near what could be available. Right. And you said the punch cards. Well, that's that was what the earliest computers used, and those were also funded by all the uh, all these organizations. Um, the uh, <clears throat> computers that were used in Germany were there was two two branches of IBM that uh, had a lot to do with this, and that would be the one in the United States, and then the one in Germany uh, during World War II. So they were trading with the enemy, and of course they, had, <laughs> you know, they had to start keeping that on the down low once all, all the really bad stuff started going on. And we don't know what really was going on and what they really knew, but they were using these computers, these early punch card computers for databasing. You know, in, in this is in the 1930s and 1940s, databasing people so that they could organize, reorganize the uh, the structure of Europe to the way they felt they wanted to do so. And here here we again see all, all these organizations involved with creating computers and, and the, the social engineering aspect tied in to machines already at this early stage. It's a crazy thing to consider when you mentioned databasing back in that time because I've forgotten the people's name, but there are accounts that claim some of the earliest algorithms that would begin to be able to predict the future uh, were back in the 40s at some point. I forget the name of one of the mathematicians that's attributed to it, and I think I just saw it echoed in a movie or a show somewhere. I just don't remember. But when you consider what you're saying, that even back then they were databasing everything, well, there's the raw data you need for algorithms to matter. Um, before you have large data sets, these algorithms can do amazing things, but once you have those large data sets, that's when the real power is, is unleashed and, the, you know, basically having a bit of a time machine where you can predict the outcomes in 99% certainty or something like this. Um, that was way back in the 40s. So you can imagine where things have come by now uh, by the people with the best tools. Well, just to give the, the, the little bit of history here, IBM was founded in 1898 and one of the big things they did was census records. So as they're developing these machines that use the early punch cards, they would take not just account of the people and their names, what their descents were, you know, their family histories, everything. So all this information is going into these punch cards. And then they've developed these machines by the 1930s that can already do databasing. So you know who is where and, and what they are and all that. And then everything as the restructuring of Europe was going on during the Nazi Germany reign, they had these machines all over Europe. So it shows you like how what kind of control they had well beyond pen and paper and filing cabinets. You know, they already were doing things how you'd expect a, a large company to do it today. Uh, that, it's just crazy to hear that because you've got to imagine that plays into eugenics. Um, in, in my mind, that kind of thing is no different than the recent VA push where they were trying to get everyone's DNA to help improve health care. Um, it's a crazy, crazy thing when people start collecting racial information, knowing what's happened in places like Africa and other places with uh, with race information. Right. And, and the eugenics thing that that movement started really kicking off in the 20s and 30s, uh, right around the time Nazi Germany is solidifying their power. Now, everybody associates eugenics with uh, Nazi Germany and, and wiping out the Jews and all that stuff. But it. In, in sincerity, where it came from was uh, people like Matt, uh, Margaret Sanger in the United States, where they, they were making blatant 
public statements about black people are weeds and animals and we need to get rid of them. And, you know, these people were openly racist and there were laws all over the place about sterilization. And if you're not good enough, uh, you can't pass on your genes. Like all these horrible, horrible ideas that would just so, so not fly today. You know, the political correctness today was just to not exist in this time period. And uh, it, it seems that Hitler got a lot of those ideas from the United States. And there were laws in numerous states about eugenics and how to deal with it. So, you know, we're not as innocent here in the United States as, as uh, people like to think we are. Well, I would say we doesn't include the people who did it because we're talking about lords and ladies and our betters for the most part in some way, shape or form, certainly the richest among us. But uh, I would point out, as I did the Tavistock research for the previous two episodes, um, I was astounded to find claims that all of the kind of green movement, you know, World Wildlife Fund, all these Greenpeace, all these things were formed by the Tavistockian Institute mind. And the whole premise behind it was to lift the importance of saving all these animals with eugenics hidden behind what they were actually doing. And the claim is that in Africa, um, there has been a depopulation that if the size of it was known, there would be outrage by normal human beings. And not only that, sterilization was a big part of it. And when you turn on your television today and see all the travel shows where people are going on safari and see all these new hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres that have been recombined that used to be farmland, this is the claim by the research that I did that what happened there was the people who were farming there were basically in a eugenics program. It is claimed that the environmental movement started by Tavistock, that some very far-right Christian organizations, and I forget the third, are basically running the continent of Africa at the behest of you know the royal families and the same old, same old players that we always talk about. Right. And now Hitler gave eugenics, uh, that particular word, a very bad name, obviously, with, with what went on in Nazi Germany. And you can debate... Uh, what exactly the specifics were, but obviously he had problems uh, with certain people and did very likely very terrible things to them. Um, so the social engineers got to work like, okay, we can't talk about eugenics anymore. So they came up with a new word for it all, and it's a word we still use today, and that's genetics. So now all of a sudden we went from eugenics to genetics. Genetics is a proper scientific field that people can uh, study and and used to uh, further the, the development of mankind. And, and in reality, it has, of course, its roots in the eugenics programs. Right. And, and it's crazy. Like I mentioned, the modern VA, you know, get your genetics to us. Or even National Geographic was doing the World Genome Project. Project. What do you think that's about? They're bean counting people and bloodlines. But, you know, I would give a lot to have some reality-based understanding of what World War II was. Because like so many things that I begin to scrutinize, um, these things don't hold water. To even include uh, nukes, you know, that's supposedly what ended that war. Well, in my view, nukes are BS. They were wholesale invented by a fiction writer, and they don't exist. And not only that, no one in their right mind would use any kind of device like that in a, in a closed environment like we live in. And even if you don't accept anything, um, you know that we have an atmosphere and then there's some division or space. If that's the model you accept, that is still an enclosed environment. And you're not going to trash it in this way. And that's just one small portion of, of what you can look at w with regard to nukes when you get to a point where you can kind of see between the lines what's being shown you but again um world war ii so many of the things we can look at begin not to hold water and the whole idea of hitler and you know disney and all these other things i would give a lot to have some kind of a reality-based understanding of that time period that's that's all i can say about it right there was obviously some kind of massive upheaval going on behind the scenes that uh, somebody like hitler was even allowed to do I mean, obviously, there was a war and things got restructured. So <clears throat> whatever the reality is, obviously, he was allowed to get as far as he did because all you would have to do is, is just go to the country and see what he was doing. So something was going on there and he was being allowed to do it. Now, I've always been very curious about why he was allowed to get as far as he did, that the banking clans were OK with him being a megalomaniac. And, and maybe he just took it too far, and that's why they had to get everyone involved uh, to stop him. Uh, maybe that is the reality. I'm not sure. But obviously there's a lot more to the politics and uh, 
the, the real reasonings behind all of those events. Well, the claim in the research I just did, for whatever it's worth, is that the same people behind Tavistock, Frankfurt School, this whole kind of movement that moved towards social engineering invented Hitler and made it not only, uh, you know, did their little engineering on the society to allow it to happen, but they funded him, backed him and pushed him into place. But again, I view all this kind of World War II stuff with such suspicion. I just... Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like other things. All this other stuff we're looking at, we can show to be nonsense, but not this. This is this happened the way we're told, and I just don't accept it. But again, you know, out of all that research I did, the claim is is that basically they engineered that society to prep the way for that individual, and then they funded him and pushed him in. Um, that's the claim. Don't know what to make of it. Right, and that, that's the same things I come up with. We don't know what uh, really happened, but it does appear that – Whoever Adolf Hitler was in his early years, he did get massive backing from all these shadowy families. You know, there's a weird thing going on right now on television where I've recorded way more TV than I normally watch. And I don't know that I'll watch it all. But on Turner Classic Movies, they popped out Alec Baldwin to do rehashes of the propaganda that was pushed on film in World War II. And they're calling the next week or two, or I'm not sure, this truth thing about you know world war ii so i've recorded all these things and i think i may be able to add a bit more after i watch these because they're going to cover of course <laughs> the first 9-11 which was pearl harbor because <laughs> 9-11 is the second pearl harbor which tells you quite a bit about the first pearl harbor <laughs> but there is actual all this film of the propaganda and they did one on what it was called pretty pathetically the negro soldier um hard to imagine that that you know was going on i watched a little of that but i i will go get back maybe and report a little further on on my views of world war ii after i've watched this supposed truth coming from the turner classic movies that it's going to run all these old reels but uh, other than that i'm not sure what i can add well what we already know just from this little bit of history we went through by the time world war ii came around 30s and 40s these institutions that were established have already been doing their work for quite some time. So they, they know what they were doing. Whatever propaganda was being put out was definitely calculated and intentional. Yeah, you know, and there is this whole weird Disney thing that crosses over into Germany. You know, I've seen a lot of people pointing out, like, if you go look at the names of directors on Disney movies, a lot of them are German names. And then even in the modern shows, like maybe Family Guy or something, they're constantly making the joke that, oh, Disney was anti-Semitic, um, so you shouldn't watch this, 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 and this network. Um, this goes on all the time, and you know, I... I all I can say is I would give a lot to understand the reality of that a little bit better in the same way that I would give a lot to understand the idea of owls and spiders. Although I kind of think I have a framework for it. It's not enough. Um, I would love to have some reality based view into it. And maybe that's just something to work for. You know, I definitely like to know more about some of these huge shows like you mentioned South Park and Family Guy. Who is injecting this information like for very uh, for, for a very good example, there was an episode of The Cleveland Show that I saw, and I don't watch a lot of TV, but you know sometimes um, I'll watch it with other people, and there was an episode where they were making the joke of that they were doing it live like a lot of shows in the 70s were, and here's Cleveland at the end reading off the credits uh, like they would in those days, and just out of the blue he goes, 9-11 was an inside job, y'all, and I'm like, wait, what? Right. This just went out over... You know, mainstream television, and they put that in there? They've done that more than once on the Cleveland show. They said, I forget who was complicit or, or who brought you 9-11. But you see, in the research that I just did on Tavistock, there were more claims made by the people who researched Tavistock. What they claimed was is that a story comes from somewhere, usually young people, and someone in Hollywood gets interested in it. Then when it's accepted that it might go somewhere, writers put a very simplistic language script around it. Then it goes to directors and producers. Before it goes in production, there are people called uh, – shoot, what's the word? It's slipping my mind. Um, 
gosh dang it anyhow there's the oh advisors there's these advisors that are literally from places like tavistock who insert the social engineering into the script and then it's handed to the producers and directors and it goes into production and uh, i've said for a long time i think the directors are complicit because we can see certain directors in a chain of movies that are clearly pre-echoing and, and doing all kinds of things but that was the claim from the tavistock institute but even at the cleveland level where he's saying stuff like that there's social engineering behind the very delivery of that line meant to turn it into comedy and further diffuse any, you know, push behind these ideas, I think. Right. And it I mean, it's obviously intentional all the way down to these actors doing the voice parts. It's like and nobody's bringing this up. Nobody's questioning these things like Seth MacFarlane does half the voices on Family Guy. What does he know? Obviously, if he's doing all these characters saying these things. It, there's got to be an agenda here. It's not just like, oh, okay, here's the script today. No, no, that's the guy's obviously not stupid. He's created a gazillion dollar empire, you know, like with his cartoons. Like, well, I mean, yeah, come on, you're looking at a guy who had like what three shows in prime time at some point. You know, you're not looking in in my estimation, you're not looking at just an average everyday dude who happened to make it. There's got to be something more there. But even so, you know, I've considered the very thing you've just asked. I, in my view, it's quite possible that the people delivering lines could think it's just some edgy joke and not really understand the full import of what's being delivered right but i also would would uh wonder what they're thinking in their own minds when family guy being a good example that they're doing things that haven't happened yet and then within a few months uh, usually at the most all of a sudden these events are transpiring like the boston bombing there was an episode i saw that i deliberately watched because i'd seen clips of it where they're doing things with the boston bombing before it ever happened Right, and they took those off the air um, to either create more controversy or whatever, and then I guess at some point they went back on the air. I, I agree with you. Um, I mean, if all I can do is imagine if I was in that position, what would I be thinking? And as a human being, I hope I would come to the conclusion that, hey, man, I'm participating in a thing here that's doing harm to society. Um, but I imagine there's also a lot of people, you know, when you go in and sign those contracts and you're getting paid the big bucks – I don't know. Maybe a lot of people just decide to put their head down and shut up. Who knows? Um, these are very difficult things to know. I, I think early on they probably were like, huh, that's an interesting coincidence. But by now there's no way these, these people from the writers to to the uh, numerous voice actors, they've got to know by now that they're involved in something that goes deeper than just a cartoon. Yeah, you would imagine. I mean, I, I'm sitting here watching what they're producing, knowing that. So, you know, I'm I'm right where you are. How is it even possible that the people delivering it don't know way more than I do? Exactly. Now, the guys on South Park, I've, I've been getting more and more curious about because Family Guy and those shows, um, South Park and Family Guy are produced very differently as far as the actual animation and all that. Family Guy has massive production behind it and the kind of animation that goes into it. Uh, big team of writers. Lots of uh, production to get the cartoons animated and all that. South Park is done with a small team and with the same two guys that have done it since they invented it. So they have a lot more direct control over everything. <clears throat> and I got to wonder when you start seeing them injecting things like, okay, this isn't like a huge group of people where somebody's inserting something somewhere. Those two, if something is going into South Park, they had something to do with it. I would imagine that's true, but in terms of having control, I would point out to you that they are on a smaller network. They constantly make jokes about how bad Family Guy is or don't watch it, this kind of thing. But I would further point out that they're running on Comedy Central, which has a logo that is CC33. Um, the idea that anyone is making a show and has control over what's going to be broadcast to millions of mine, in my view, is ludicrous. Um, I don't think it matters whether you are on Fox primetime or whether you're on Comedy Central not-so-primetime at 10 o'clock at night. You are pre-echoing things that are in a system that was planned for probably a very, very long time. And I think that the idea that there's a Tavistock advisor there kind of steering it, it, it would have to be something like that. Or like, you know, a director that is absolutely tied in to the, you know, who knows, shows up at the trilateral commission meeting or the highest Masonic, whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, they all in concert decide what's going to be done. And I will always maintain that a lot of this is tipping your hand to the audience 
because for whatever reason, you can't just simply set a bear trap out and blindside someone. Um, that is a hard, fast rule that we can see demonstrated over and over. People argue endlessly why that might be. I've said the third law of al- you know, uh, alchemical law, um, the idea of karma or cause and effect, even going into other avenues of magic and lesser magic. Point is, they are tipping their hand. So is it possible that some guy, just because he happened to make a successful show, is being trusted with tipping the hand and i would i would submit i doubt it seriously um this all has to be in concert um and even though they're on a lesser a lesser you know network it is cc is their logo right so you you know that even on the smaller networks that the control is there and i absolutely don't think that anybody who's on anything mainstream you may start out innocent but there's no way if it gets picked up and pushed that you're not at least in some way, shape, or form, involved or complicit in what's going on. And especially the big names, people like Seth MacFarlane or these directors who keep putting out movies repeatedly over decades with the same kind of themes over and over and over again, they've got to at least have somewhat of a clue of uh, as to what they're doing. Yeah, I, I would agree. Anyone who's been put in the director's chair over and over is you know, obviously been approved at some level for something. Um, there, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, I pointed out like the, uh, the back to the future movies, who was that? Was that Zemeckis? Yeah, I always Robert forget. Zemeckis, yeah. yeah. So if you look at the movies he's done through time, you know, you've got to imagine that there's the approved voice in some way, shape or form. But of course, these are all done with team efforts. Um, so it's hard to know whether my Tavistock research is spot on and these advisors are, are there on everything, but it does feel like that because there does not seem to be any major gateway for information that is not subject to these things we're talking about. Um, and I accept that wholeheartedly. I see that. I witness it. I really feel that that is correct. So how it's implemented, I mean, I think we're getting closer to it. But clearly, there is an overarching script for the things we're seeing in real time in the real world that are being pre-echoed. So how could it be that they are not scripted in a similar way to do the, the whole tip of the hand, you know, to make visible temporarily what was previously hidden to their kind of magical, weird agenda? Right. And it, everything's really blatant now. But even when we go back in time, they were introducing concepts little by little. Like they, were, you can see as you go through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, they're letting the cat out of the bag a little bit more at a time with all these agendas. You know, um, 1984 by George Orwell and uh, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. They're blatantly saying that these are the ideals that they're shooting for. That's right. That is and absolutely both of those books are early. That's early 20th century. And both can be tied directly to the social engineering networks we talked about so extensively in the last two episodes. There is no doubt. And this shows you that fiction is being created as a roadmap to the supposed reality that's going to be implemented. Uh, it's a crazy, crazy thing, but there really is no denying it. This is what's happened. And in the same way, was it you who pointed out that, that Bill Maher had said in one of his recent episodes that people should pay attention to movies because they always show what's about to happen? Was that you? Uh, I've heard that said. I may have uh, mentioned it in, in one of our discussions. Well, truer things, you know, these are factual statements. You can no longer in the modern age sit down to be entertained. Because if you do that, you're a zombie. And next zombie movie you see, that is you they are making fun of. When you see these big productions that go out to hundreds of millions of minds, some of them all over this world, you have to be looking with a critical eye. As an example, on 11-11, I covered this so extensively in the Crowley mindset of 9-11 that a spell is being cast. It is kind of an evil thing meant to bring change in that mindset, in that view. On 11-11, which is also Veterans Day, they are releasing this big alien thing. But they have now changed the trailer to say something to the effect, this is not a movie. This is an actual real experience. You know, these kinds of things being shoved in your face. And how many people have been yelling from the buildings, tops of buildings for, you know, years now that there's going to be some kind of a fake alien invasion? And, you know, all all the work I've done, I've pointed out, I have never seen a single thing that lets me know there's anything about the alien idea that's real. I can tell you in the same breath, it always 
felt weird to me to consider that we're the only game in town. But nonetheless, I can show you Roswell was nonsense. Bentwaters, all these old things that show up on TV that supposedly prove the idea of alias, that's social engineering. Even in the Tavistock research, it went so far as to say that was invented by the social engineers. So there it is, man. For whatever it's worth, you, you can't just sit down and zone out for entertainment. What you're seeing is something other than entertainment being put before you. Well, the alien thing, you can, you know, who knows what's really going on, but as far as it being put forth, uh, in the, into the mainstream context, you can see how the concepts of aliens changed over the decades. I mean, it was very silly and woo-woo in the very early 20th century. Right. Uh, you know, and it, and it kind of like gets more realistic as things go by. You know, you you get in, you have like the silly B-movies of the 50s, but then you get into the 60s and all of a sudden it's more about like uh, <clears throat> humanity going out into the stars and then you know, you have Star Trek where, like, oh, no, it's a big galactic federation, and, and we get along with the aliens, and, but some of them are bad. And, you know, and it, it's just – it becomes more – it targets you in a, a completely different way. It's it's being taken out of a, a silly context and put into a more realistic concept. No, these are – there's aliens out there. You can You can have conversations with them. They're just like you and I. They're just a little different. Well, it's also the only context you have. If you consider movies like, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Ti Kind and the impact that had, um, probably a similar impact that Jaws did, you know, on people swimming for a few generations. Um, this is the only idea or picturing of aliens we get in any way is from television and movies. None of us have seen a real picture of an alien. None of us have, you know, there's there's no reality we can look at, so it's all come to us through entertainment. And again, in the Tavistock research, it was flat out claimed that this was part of the social engineering intentionally inserted and then played off in movies and all these X-Files and all these things that came to be and it even attributed so much of what we think of space uh, to the first Star Trek, which only went three years. But, there's, you know, Bradbury's a whole other thing. Clearly part of the system well i think they realized after star trek that they've got a, a huge genre to inject ideas with science fiction was kind of hit and miss in the earlier days but i think star trek kind of made the social engineers realize hey we the science fiction thing we, we've really got something here we can inject concepts on a massive scale uh without people questioning it because oh it's just silly science fiction yeah, but I mean, you can begin to see the power of these ideas. What if any of the things I have said I think are likely correct are correct? What if space is some kind of liquid? Look what Star Trek did. What if the moon is way, way closer than we've been told and you can't actually walk on it and it's emanating its own light? What did Star Trek do? What if the description of this planet is actually a lie? That we've been denied understanding where we actually exist where we are centered than what did Star Trek do. You see, you can begin to see the power of these mediums um, because in some sense, we went to school, we learned these things, but man, when we saw Captain Kirk going to space, that is really what cemented our view. So now when we get back to the red hot chili peppers and we understand that you know space was made in a Holly, Hollywood basement, which of these two things is more likely correct? Um, and that's about all I can submit for now. But anyhow, we've come into the top of the first hour. So let's prep up for the second hour. Jason, do you want to do just a brief rundown of what's coming in the second hour? Well, in the second hour, um, I really want to touch on Walt Disney, who was a 33rd degree Freemason, the massive empire that he constructed early on and how that gets into so many different aspects of our society and and the ridiculousness of the wholesome image that he portrayed and how he was paying uh, advisors to, to make sure that he had this image to the public when in reality there are all these other things were going on in the background. And from there, we're going to go on to th through the rest of history, through the 60s, 70s, all the way up to today, um, talking about how computing and cybernetics and transhumanism, how all these things intertwine to the point we're at today where you've got people who, who literally want to become one with machines. Right. And I think we'll touch on Anton LaVey of the kind of creator of the Satanist society or Satanism in the modern era. Um, Philip K. Dick 
that's an interesting, interesting story. So many of the really big-time sci-fi storylines are attributed to Philip K. Dick, whoever the heck that was. Ridley Scott is on. Um, we'll touch on Terminator, Nietzsche. There's a lot coming in the second hour. Anyhow, is there anything you want to add before we uh, before we regroup here to record hour two? Uh, to kind of end cap the first hour with what we were talking about with a lot of these characters, like Aldous Huxley and his brother Julian. Um, Aldous Huxley is the first one to put forth the concept of the scientific dictatorship, and that was a term he reused a lot. And uh, a lot of people don't know this, but he was involved with Timothy Leary in the 1950s. Uh, there it is. Yeah. Aldous Huxley was Timothy Leary's mentor, one of them, uh, working on the MK Ultra program. And uh, Timothy, Leary, excuse me, Timothy Leary blatantly discussing, discussing the expansion of the human mind through LSD. And, uh, you know, you can see, again, Timothy Leary wasn't some hero of the 1960s, the way people, a lot of people think he is, was. Uh, he was connected to all these other shadowy figures. And not only that, um, it's the social engineering that I outlined ad nauseum in the last two episodes. They basically targeted the youth of the 60s and they drugged the living daylights out of them. Timothy Leary and the universities are at the heart of that. So to just reconsider how that went down, you had mothers and fathers sending their kids to universities, and those very universities had been infiltrated, and they were creating LSD and the other seeds of discontent for the counterculture, uh, and they drugged the living daylights out of all those kids, having created the drugs that started it in the universities and using the kids that were at the universities to disperse it out into the what's called the counterculture now so yeah by the time you get to leary it's you know it's a whole other view that most people don't understand uh, the, these were wholesale wars on generations by social engineers and they were very very effective yep all right, man, I'll wrap it up. So there's the first hour. Uh, second hour will be posted over at crow777radio.com. Again, if you send me email and do not get a response from me, there is a reason. It's because it's not being delivered. Um, I hope you folks are still going to the site and getting to the content. But according to the stats, I can see uh, the content fell off on the 21st of last month and has not recovered yet. I'm not sure what's going on here. But if anyone notices something funny, please contact me and stick with it till you hear back from me. Anyhow, there it is. Come join us at crow777radio.com. 